you'll open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark chapter 4, as you're turning there, let let me remind you that it's very likely that the first of our four Gospels to have been written, it's very likely the Gospel of Mark. Mark was the traveling companion of Simon Peter, and really standing behind the Gospel of Mark is the testimony of Simon Peter. So as we study through the Gospel of Mark, we are reading the first written account written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit from the hand of one who knew Simon Peter and traveled with Simon Peter. It's a precious book, and the truth that it has to teach us about Jesus is incalculable. I want to begin reading in verse 35, and I'd like to read through verse 41 and have you follow. On that day, the day day that Jesus finished teaching the crowds in parables, on that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was asleep in the stern. Jesus himself, I'm sorry, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and the sea and said, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, to the disciples, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? If you've got a pencil or a pen, why don't you circle that word afraid? You see it used in two consecutive verses. You see it in verse 40 where Jesus says, why are you so afraid? And then in verse 41, they became very much afraid. You know, fear can be a positive emotion. It, It has some It causes some positive things initially to happen inside of us. It gives us a rush of adrenaline. It it heightens our our sense of hearing and sight. But the emotion of fear was, was never intended to be lived with for a prolonged period of time. And as positive as it can be in a in a short increment, in a maybe a dangerous circumstance or situation. It can become very detrimental when it becomes a characteristic or quality or habit in our lives. A recent study says that almost 20% of people over 18 years of age suffer from anxiety disorder at some point during the year. Anxiety disorder manifests itself in an inability to sleep because of worry. It manifests itself in, in paralysis 
in our decision-making. We become paralyzed and virtually incapable of making important decisions. In some people, it causes them to become a micromanager. They think, if I can just control my world and everything in my world, if I can, if I can be the one that, that moves all the chess pieces, then I can alleviate that, from which, that for which I am fearful. God didn't intend for us to live with a spirit of fear. One German pastor, after meeting Adolf Hitler in 1933, was recounting the, the meeting to his wife. And he said, Hitler is a terribly frightened man. He has to be in control of everyone and everything around him. The disciples know what it's like to be afraid. We see that here in this passage. They find themselves in the midst of a storm and their life is in danger. And we would have thought that maybe if there was ever a time it was appropriate to be afraid, that would have been a time to be afraid. But their fear demonstrated a lack of faith and confidence and trust in Jesus. And so I want to talk with you this morning about fear faith, and life's unexpected storms. Fear, faith, and life's unexpected storms. The interesting thing is every one of us can relate to every aspect of that title. We know what it's like to be afraid, to be fearful in an inappropriate way. We know what it's like to struggle with our faith, to want to trust but not feel like we can muster up enough trust. And we know what it's like to be in in a boat in the midst of a violent storm and to feel that, that the boat's going to sink. Notice the setting for the story in verses 35 and 36, the setting. Jesus has just finished teaching the crowd. Uh, We've looked the last couple of weeks at Jesus' parables in chapter 4. The crowds were enormous, and in fact, they were so large, it appears that he had had to get into a boat, and he just got a little separation between himself and the people by by having the boat pushed out just a little bit from the shoreline, and it allowed his voice to project, and it gave him a little bit of breathing room, but the crowds were coming to him from everywhere. They were captivated by his teaching. They had never heard anyone teach with the kind of authority that he had. He was spellbinding. And so they had to hear what he had to say. And when he finished teaching them, he says to his disciples, let us go to the other side. They're on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, and he wants to take them to the eastern side. The eastern side of the Sea of Galilee is Gentile territory. The western side of the Sea of Galilee is Jewish territory. He's probably somewhere near Capernaum. And so they get into a boat, and then some others get into boats to begin to follow them. But what's Jesus doing? Well, Jesus is trying to find a little bit of time for rest, relaxation, and refreshment. 
See, we all need to find time to rest our souls from kingdom labors. Now, some people don't need time to rest their souls because they virtually they do virtually nothing for the kingdom. But you'll remember the study that we did uh, just a couple of, well, it's just a year ago, we reported it to you that over 70% of our congregation was actively engaged in service in our congregation in some way. And of that 25 to 30% that weren't, a portion of those had just joined our church or they were, weren't physically able to serve. But what happens is, if you expend yourself wholly in kingdom causes without time to refresh and to renew and to regroup, you burn out. And one of the main reasons that people leave churches is because of burnout. That is, they leave churches if they're a faithful, active member. Faithful, active members will leave their church one of the main reasons that they do is because of burnout. And people are, are, are shocked when they leave. Why would they leave? They were so involved and engaged and active and they just seemed to be at everything and they were involved in everything. And that's exactly why they sometimes leave. Their soul dries up. And when your soul dries up, you have a tendency to become negative, critical, nitpicky, and fault-finding. That's why when, when our pastors go on vacation, I tell them, keep your phone off, check it once a day. If you have a message from me or a message from the church, look at it. Otherwise, you're on vacation. You need refreshment and renewal. You need to, you need to have your soul recharged, your battery energized. And the same is true not just for ministers, but for those who are actively engaged in service in the kingdom. So, so we all need to find time to rest our souls. Jesus is getting away from the crowds to spend some time with his disciples. But I want you to notice with me, secondly in this passage, the storm. The storm. And there, are, and there arose a fierce gale of wind. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Now, you've seen pictures of the Sea of Galilee, I'm rather certain. The Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long, 7 miles wide, and it is 700 feet below sea level. So it's in a basin. It's surrounded by rather high hills all the way around. And so the, the heat would come in and it would begin to, the, the hot wind would come in and, and it would begin to swirl around that basin, meeting with the cooler air that would come up from the Sea of Galilee. And, and, and rather quickly, uh, dangerous storms can, can arise. Now we would think that the disciples would be very capable swimmers, but in the ancient world you didn't swim for recreation. You know, we go to the lake and we go swimming and skiing or we go to the local pool and we, we sit by the pool and we, we swim. We give our children swimming lessons. In the ancient world, swimming was not a recreational activity. In first century Palestine, you worked from sunrise to sunset six days a week except for the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, you did not engage in in activities like what we might consider things that, that relax us or refresh us. 
So they were not exceptionally strong swimmers. But I think what would have shocked them is the same thing that shocks us when we find ourselves in the midst of a violent storm, and that is faithful service to Jesus is not an exemption from life's storms. Faithful service to Jesus is not an exemption from life's storms. Now think about this for just a moment. They were right where they were supposed to be doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. They were going to the other side. It's not like they were out of the will of God. They were in the will of God. They were obeying the master specifically and directly. And yet they found themselves in such a violent scenario that they feared for their own lives Some of them even seasoned fishermen. You know, we often have that thought, don't we? We often think that by following Christ and doing his will and living in obedience to his word, that we're going to have a stormless journey to heaven. That there are not going to be hardships and difficulties along the way. But we need to be reminded of the fact that God has never promised us a stormless journey to heaven. He's forgiven us of all our sins. He's clothed us in Christ's righteousness. He hears our prayers and he has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us. But what he has not done is to promise us a trialless life. He loves us too much to promise that. You see, what happens is if we think that we've earned a carefree, pain-free life, when pain and care comes our way, we become overwhelmed, discouraged, despondent, embittered, resentful. And Satan sees that weakness in us and he he accentuates it by sending flaming darts. If God knew where you were, he wouldn't leave you like you are. If he were true and his promises were true, you wouldn't have lost your job. Your child wouldn't have cancer. Your friend wouldn't have betrayed you. But that's not what he's promised. Sometimes he leads us right into a storm. And where we have to, what we have to do is to come to the point where we believe it's better to be with him in the storm than it is to be without him in a calm, tranquil place. Well, I want you to notice thirdly the disciples' fear. Notice, notice their, their response in, in verse 38, the disciples' fear. Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion. Notice he's exhausted. Mark shows us something of Jesus' humanity at this point. 
in the midst of that storm, he's just exhausted. He's been teaching all day, and on previous days, he's been casting out demons and healing the sick. He's just worn out. It's a, it's a little insight into his humanity. You know, we believe Jesus to be the God-man. One heresy that we often accentuate is that Jesus is God and not man. Jesus is the God-man. He's fully God and fully man. To accentuate one to the detriment of the other is equally bad. To, say, to emphasize the fact that he's God and not man is to say that he really couldn't pay the penalty for our sin because he's not like us. He didn't, he didn't experience life like we did. To say that he's man and not God is to say that his death will be completely inadequate and insufficient to pay the penalty for our sin. He's the God-man. So he's just completely worn out. He's asleep on the cushion. And you, and you, can, you can almost hear the, the frantic nature in their voices. You can sense the, the fear emanating in their words. Teacher! Notice they call him teacher, not master or Lord. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Don't you recognize what's going on? Don't you see what's taking place? The question is, does God really care about me? Do you really care about us? That's what they're saying to him. We wouldn't be in this situation if you loved us. We wouldn't be in this situation if you cared about us. It's a rather common reaction to God when we find ourselves in trying situations. We, in, we, we, we think he must be asleep. How could, he, how could he leave us in this circumstance? How could he leave us hanging out there like we are? Doesn't he care about us? And so their question is our question. Their doubt is our doubt. Their concern is our concern. If he really cared about me, he wouldn't leave me in this job. If he really cared about me, he wouldn't allow me to get this, get this medical report. And fear just begins to dominate our emotions and our thinking. And we begin to doubt the love of God. Living on this side of the cross, whenever we begin to doubt God's love, we ought to go to the cross. How could, anyone, how could any one of us ever doubt that God loved us if he sent his son to die for us? How could we ever doubt his love when we read in the Gospels what his son experienced in our place? And so, does God really care about me? You bet he does. His son died for you. Don't let the circumstances of your, your life today dictate for you God's love to you. I want you to notice with me, fourthly, Jesus' authority. His authority in verse 39. And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, 
You know, that word rebuked, it's an interesting word. It was used in chapter 1 to describe how Jesus spoke to a demon. He rebuked the demon. He said, be silent and come out. Some scholars suggest that by using this word, Mark is insinuating that, that this storm was demonically stirred up. Uh, that there were, that there were d- the demons behind it trying to kill Jesus. No, I think that what Mark is doing, he's taking his cue from Jesus, and, and in a sense he's personifying the wind and the waves as if they were a living entity to communicate to the disciples, not only does he rebuke demons, but he has control over nature, nature itself. Jesus has authority over demons, we've seen that, and now we see he has authority over nature itself. And the point is, nothing is too difficult for him. Nothing is too difficult for him because he is God. Nature heard his voice in the beginning. He called it into existence. And so when he speaks to it now, it recognizes that voice once again and it responds immediately, instantaneously. The implication is that if that's the way nature responds to him, we should respond the same way. Remember in in chapter 4, in the parables, we circled every time the word hear, H-E-A-R, is used. And he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Take heed what you listen to. Go back with me to chapter 3 and look in verse 35. In chapter 3, verse 35, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Remember, they were sitting around him. And Jesus says, my family are those who hear my word and do it. If nature responds instantaneously, how much more should we that have been bought by the blood of the Lamb respond to the voice of Jesus and obey? But let's not leave verse 39 without driving home the point and maybe like a branding iron emblazing it on our hearts, nothing is too difficult for him. Nothing is too difficult for him. No storm so violent that he can't stop it. No no soul so dark that he can't enlighten it. No temper so violent that he can't bring it under control. No greed so so insatiable that he can't turn it into generosity. No sinner so far gone that he can't give them life. Nothing is too difficult for him. I want you to notice, fifthly, in verse 40, Jesus' rebuke. His rebuke. We're going to learn in this verse that storms test our faith. They help us to see where we're really at in our spiritual lives. They don't 
give God any insight into where we're at. He already knows. He knows I'm going to send Cook into a storm. In fact, I'm going to lead him into a storm. I'm going to be in the boat with him. And he's going to go right in the midst of a storm. Because I want him to see where he's really at. He's not nearly as far along as he thinks he is. He's going to think things he would have never thought he would think. He's going to say things he never thought he would say. He's going to behave in ways that he would have never dreamed that he would behave. But he needs to know this about himself. He needs to know where he's really at. And so Jesus rebukes them. And he speaks to the issue of their faith. Look with me in verse 40. It says, why are, you, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, I don't think that they were completely faithless, but I mean their faith was weak. Their faith was weak. They were saying, don't you care about us? Can't you do something about this? The storm helped them to see that they weren't as far along in their discipleship as they thought they were. Paralyzing fear or the kind of fear that causes you to try to control your world is is a demonstration that your faith is struggling. One day, we're going to look back on all of our trials and we're going to say it was good for me to suffer affliction. It was good for me to be led into that storm. Because we're going to see how he uses suffering and storms to show us our need of him. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Storms help us understand I can't do life on my own. I can't control my world like I would like to control it. I'm too weak and feeble to do it. And so it drives us to Jesus. It causes us to seek after him. James put it this way. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Notice trials equal a test of faith. And the faith is tested in order to reveal to us where we are and... To bring about the quality of endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Jesus rebukes them because of their lack of faith. So the question is, how can we we increase our faith? How can we grow our faith? How can our faith mature and develop? Well, one way it matures and develops is by reading the Bible. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. A regular Bible reading plan. A regular reading of the scriptures the spirit of God uses to develop within us faith. 
There are, there are seeds, so to speak, planted by reading the word. And those, faith, and those seeds grow into strong faith. So reading the Bible. Second, we can pray. Do you remember the, the father who approached Jesus about casting the demon out of his son? In fact, we're going to study it in Mark chapter 9. The father says, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, but my faith is weak. I believe, but my faith is trembling. I believe, but, it, but it's not very strong. So he prays, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So we read the word of God and we pray to the God of the word, strengthen our faith. But thirdly, we have to exercise faith. We actually have to put faith into action. We live in obedience to the word of God. We believe that nothing is impossible with God. We don't allow the storms of life to dissuade us from seeking Jesus but the storms of life become the impetus for seeking Jesus. And so Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith. But I want you to notice, lastly, the crucial question. The crucial question. The crucial question is, who do we believe Jesus to be? See, the storms are ultimately to direct our attention to Jesus. And that's what happens in this storm. Look in verse 41. They became very much afraid and said to one another, now this is the climax, the zenith, the apex, the high point. This is where everything's been driving. This is the culmination of the entire episode. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's what Mark wants the readers in Rome and those who are hearing it being read to think about. Who is this? Who can speak to the wind and the, and the sea and they respond? Who has authority over nature? Who can do what this man does? He must be God. This is the apex. The question, who is this? And more pointedly, who do we believe him to be? Those who were Jewish Christians who would have heard this read, their minds would have begun to think back to their scriptures. And particularly the Psalms. Because in the Psalms, it's very clear that the only one that can control nature is God. The only one that can calm a raging sea is God. The only one that can, that can stop a hurricane-force wind is God. Psalm 65, verse 7. Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples? It's a rhetorical question, and the answer is God, and God alone can do that. Psalm 89, verse 9. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 127, verses 28 and 29. 
Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. This is the most important point in the passage. Jesus Christ is God. And he can be trusted. He's God incarnate. He is the one that spoke the wind and the sea into existence and he's the one that can calm the storm with the same voice he used to create them. Jesus Christ is God and he can calm the raging storm. Jesus Christ is God not just in their storm but in your storm. And what he wants you to learn in the midst of your storm is that he's God and that he's with you and that he hasn't abandoned you and that he loves you and he doesn't waste your sorrow. He doesn't waste your suffering. He doesn't waste your disappointments. He uses them to strengthen and develop and mature your faith so you can be even more of who he wants you to be. There's nothing he can't do. There's nothing impossible for him. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? He is Jesus Christ, the God-man. Let me give you some final thoughts on what life storms teach us about ourselves and Jesus. What do life storms teach us about ourselves and Jesus? Let me begin with Jesus. This passage teaches us that he is a very patient God. They've let him down. They've doubted his concern. They've questioned his decision making. You would have thought that maybe he would have been finished with them. You would have thought that he'd have been put out with them. It's not going to be the first time nor the last time that they let him down. In fact, they're going to eventually abandon him in a garden and allow him to be turned over into the hands of those who will murder him. He knows that right then. He knew who would betray him. He knew what was going to happen to them, but he's patient and kind and forbearing. That's the kind of Savior that we serve. They say, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He says, maybe a little water in the lungs will do you good. That's what I would have thought. But that's not the way that he is. We learn how patient and kind he truly is. He's patient and kind, but he doesn't leave them where they are. He confronts them about their fear. That leads us to the second thought. What about us? What do we learn about us? We we should learn that the only place to turn in life's storms is to Jesus. I like the old song, and you do too, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. 
That's exactly the lesson that those who would have heard this read in a Bible study in Rome would have gleaned from it. The the appropriate place to look is to Jesus, not in doubt and fear and consternation, but in faith and love and obedience. The old song goes like this, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness to see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. And then that beautiful refrain, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We're going to have a time of commitment, and you may be here today, and you don't know where you are at with Jesus. And you'd like to talk with someone about your spiritual life. If you'll come forward, we'll we'll escort you out and, and talk with you privately, confidentially, and we'll just answer your questions. We'll open the Bible. And, and talk with you about where you are in your spiritual uh, searching. It may be that you're looking for a church home. We had several that came down in the first service that, that, that uh, said, listen, uh, I've been here long enough to know it's not a perfect place, but we'd like to join up. And, and uh, they've come forward and have allowed us the opportunity to introduce them to someone that, that would take them out and and walk them through the membership process, and we'd be glad to do that for you today. Or maybe most of you are where I am. You're a member of Ninth and O, and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and what you need to do is to pause at some point along in the singing, and Greg's going to be leading us in a song in just a moment, and just think, how do I respond in life's storms? Or maybe you might ask, how am I responding right now in this storm? And ask the Lord to give you the grace and the strength to look to Jesus. To allow your faith to be, to be strengthened and refined. And maybe you would just confess to the Lord in, in those moments in your heart. Lord, I've, I've sinned against you. I've grumbled and complained. I've doubted you. I've I've accosted your goodness. And Father, I repent of that. Forgive me and give me the strength to live like Paul lived in the midst of his sufferings. I'm going to ask if you'll stand. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. Greg's going to lead us in song. We'll join him and let's, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning that your word is so clear and and beautiful and it directs us to Jesus. So in these final moments, we pray, Holy Spirit, direct our attention to Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.